Good morning, good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, I hope you do. Go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We've been in this series for many weeks now. We're getting towards the end of it. We're in chapter 5, and we got this week and next week. And when we started this, I told you guys that one of the goals with this, uh, this book is that we would have hope. And every chapter ends with the second coming of Christ meant to give us hope. And so as we get towards the end of this book, you're going to see some practical ways that the church lives out and builds a culture of this hope. And then if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. Stick with us because we are finishing up this kind of series on hope. And then we're going to go through a series on fear not as we look at Christmas. Four biblical stories that we find in the, the Bible that highlight people who were fearful and God speaks to them and says, fear not. And I feel these are huge things for our culture today, right? We are in desperate need of hope. But at the same time, we need to release some of our fears and trust and believe in the Lord. And so I hope that you'll stick with us over the next several weeks as we walk through those different things. And let me say one more thing before we dive into the text today. If you are a church partner with us, you partner with us in ministry and missions here at West Cabarrus Church, uh, we have some important things coming up that you need to be aware of. One is we have our church business meeting coming up. But before we get to that, on December 12th, you need to get our budget, which is out at, in our welcome centers, out by our giving boxes. It's a half a sheet of paper that you can pick up and grab. And you can see where our, our pastors have been praying and planning towards spending our finances uh, for the glory of God. And our administrative team have looked over that and have considered it as well. And now, based from our pastors and our administrative team, we want you as a church to be able to have a copy of this so that you can pray over this. And be excited about where God is leading us to steward the money that he's given us in 2022. And so grab a copy of that today so you can pray over that. You can see that. But then you'll see um, our meeting on December 12th as a church is actually going to be in between our services. Uh, on December 12th, we're going to have a uh, church business meeting at 10 o'clock. So that's new. We haven't done it in between services before, but we're going to try it out this year and see what that's like. But what that means is uh, because it's... In between services, it's going to be shorter. We're going to have our new deacons, our new administrative team members on the stage that day, and then we'll vote on our budget. But if you have questions or concerns or any kind of issues about our budget, you have a chance to have a Q&A with, uh, with us on December 6th. It's a Monday um, from 6 to 7 o'clock in the Learning Center, which is the building across the way here, in the conference room there. You can drop by anytime during that hour. And I will be there, our treasurer will be there, as well as our chair and our vice chair of our administrative team. So if you have any questions, we'd love to talk with you that night. And you can pop in, like I said, anytime during that 7 or 6 to 7 time, and we'd love to answer your questions. We won't be able to address those that Sunday morning as we vote on that stuff. So excited about that. Uh, be praying for that and help us to finish 2021 well so we can launch into 2022 for the glory of God. All right, let's read this text today, and then we'll pray. Starting in verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says this. For we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, and who are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. But always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. 
that allows us to know what you've called the church to do and how we as a church should live. And so, Lord, I ask today that you would give us understanding to this passage. I ask that you would help us to be this type of church and to have this kind of culture. That through your might and your majesty, God, would you bend our thoughts to your thoughts, our will to your will. Lord, show us our sin today that we can repent of it and find refreshment in you. And Lord, as we take the Lord's Supper, may we remember your deep and your wide love for us. Redeem us and rescue us. So Lord, speak to us now. Let me invite you in a moment of silence just to pray that God would encourage and challenge you through his word today. Pray to him now. Pray for me that these few minutes that I have, would I would serve you well and would uh, help you as you look to the Lord this morning. Pray for me now. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would comfort us, that you would convict us, and that you would change us today through your word and through your spirit. Well, back in the 1990s, there was a, um, two really big restaurants, kind of fast food restaurants that you may or may not have heard of. One was Boston Chicken, okay, turned into Boston Market later. And the other was Chick-fil-A. And at that time, both of these companies had the same goal, had the same vision of what they wanted to do. They wanted to be the first business to reach $1 billion in sales as a fast food chicken restaurant. And so... Chick-fil-A got nervous about this since they heard about Boston Chicken and their goal because it's like their competitor. So Chick-fil-A got all their bigwigs in a board meeting and they're talking about how do we compete with Boston Chicken? How in the world do we do this in a, in a way that we can reach $1 billion of sales before Boston Chicken does? And in this room, there was a lot of debate and a lot of struggle and a lot of issue. And the founder and the owner of Chick-fil-A, Truett Cathy, sat there silently when it said that the people in the room felt like he was disinterested in the whole conversation. And after they argued, after argued, after argued, finally, Truett Cathy started to bang on the table and get everybody's attention. And he said, I'm sick and tired of us trying to figure out how do we reach $1 billion in sales? How do we beat Boston Chicken? He said, what we need is a better culture. And if we have a better culture, then we will, will reach that goal before they do. And what they realized is that what they needed was not a just reach of $1 billion before them, but let's build a healthy culture. And as we build a healthy culture, then we will reach that goal. And as they worked in that meeting to try to build a healthy culture, what it looked like to, for Chick-fil-A, it formed and made what Chick-fil-A is today. And by the year 2000, Chick-fil-A had reached its mark of $1 billion in sales and Boston Chicken had filed for bankruptcy. Two companies, same goals, same vision, the only difference was that culture underneath it. If they have a healthy culture, we'll reach that destination. 
Now, I tell you that this morning because in this passage, as Paul ends the book of 1 Thessalonians, what he's going to say is, church, this is what your culture should be. You all should have the goal of reaching the great commission and the great commandment. You should be fulfilling those things. But let me tell you about the culture that you should have as a church. And church, you can have the vision to be a great commandment and a great commission church, but if you do not have a healthy culture behind it, then you will fail. You will fail. And so as Paul ends this, he talks to the community. He talks to the church. And what he's going to show them is that the community model that we is far better than just me. And so he's going to tell us what kind of culture we should have. And first, he's going to tell us that the church culture should be one that honors those who serve. Who honors those who serve. In these first couple verses, verses 12 and 13, he mentions two important things that we do to honor those who serve. Maybe you circle it or underline it in your Bible, but it says you should respect them in verse 12. And then in verse 13, it says you should esteem them. What's interesting in this passage is he doesn't get down into specifics of who these leaders are. He leaves it kind of vague because he's going to give us some guidelines on who those leaders are in a minute. But what he says here is, whoever those leaders are, you should honor them by respecting and esteeming them. Now what does that mean? That word for respect there, it literally means to know, to acknowledge them. That you look at those who serve and sacrifice to care for you and love you, and you know who those people are. You acknowledge them, and you acknowledge the work that they're doing. You see them, you know them. You believe and acknowledge that God has called them and equipped them to the task in which they are serving. This is an idea to, to respect by acknowledging the leaders who are serving and deeply valuing their service for you. But then you have esteem, which is in the same sphere of thought, but it's a little bit different. Because what esteem is, is that you think about them. You think about them. See, respect is the outward approach. We acknowledge them. We see them, we know that they're there, we appreciate them, we encourage them. It's an outward thing. Esteem is an inward thing. To think about them. To think about them with affection. In verse 13 it says, to esteem them very highly in love. And as you think of those that sacrifice to serve, that you would look at them with love and affection in your heart and you would genuinely think about them. You would remember them in your thought life, in your prayer life. And this is what God is calling us to do. Church, we are called to have a culture, a culture that lovingly acknowledges our ministry leaders, greatly respects them, and at the same time is willing to overlook their non-sinful human failings. To speak well of them, to encourage them, to, to give your best for them. This is what it's calling us to do in this passage. Now here's the question, why? Why should I respect and why should I esteem those people? Is it because of the favors that they do for us? If we respect them and esteem them, they'll do more favors for us? Is it because of their personalities? They've got a big personality and I love them, they're likable, and because of that, then I will esteem them, then I will respect them. No, look carefully at God's word in verse 13. He says, esteem them very highly in love. Why? Because of their work. Their work. You look at how they serve them and you want to honor them. You honor those who serve. 
And this passage gives three ways in which they work, how, how they serve us. And it says in verse, 13, or in verse 12, they labor among you. They labor. That word for labor there means that they work until they sweat, until they're exhausted. That's what it means when it says, look at your leaders. You want to know who are the people that are loving and leading you? Those who are laboring diligently for you. Which leads some people never to serve. I don't want to lead and I don't want to serve because I know if I do, it looks like this. I've got to work to the point of exhaustion. And so you don't lean in. You don't serve. You're not a part of it. Why? And, and why? Why would anybody want to serve to the point of exhaustion? Why would anybody want to pour out and give in this way? And the reason is because those who serve and love in these ways know that it's worth it. We know that it's worth it. We know what that finish line looks like. We know the joy that awaits us when we stand before Jesus Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You loved and served me and you loved and served others, even when people didn't notice, even when people didn't care, even when people spoke ill of you and negatively. When you see the goal at the end, you'll work for it. When we see something that's valuable, we know I will work for that. I mean, that, that applies to all life, not just spiritual life. I mean, when it comes to sporting events, people who, who play professional sports, I mean, they will work diligently to win. They will sacrifice time and money and, and, the, and their bodies to exercise and to work out. Why? Because they see the goal of a win or a championship at the end, and they're like, I want that. I will work to the point of exhaustion because I know it's worth it. It's worth it. I even heard one actor say one time, this is Hugh Jackman, that for one of the roles he did, he literally only could drink protein shakes, except for at midnight. Every night at midnight, he could get up and have one piece of toast with peanut butter on it. And I'm like, oh, like why, <laughs> right? Like why would you only drink protein shakes and only have one piece of toast for months upon months? Well, because he saw that there was something worth it. I don't know if it was money or fame to him or whatever, but he saw something at the end and he's like, I will labor and I will work for that. And so why would I want to serve in this way? Because we know that it is worth it. We know that it's worth it. This is what drove Jesus to love and to serve us. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, for the joy, the joy, that reward, that inline, right? For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why did Jesus endure to the point of exhaustion? Why did he labor for the joy that was set before him? And so church family, let me say on two sides of things. One, if you're somebody that's serving, remember the goal at the end and why you do the things you do. You're working heartily as unto the Lord to reflect the way that he lived his life. For those of us here who are being served by these people, would you look to them and honor them? Whether that's a small group leader or a deacon or somebody on the administrative team or a pastor or a director, would you honor them and respect them and esteem them? Because they labor for you. And they don't just labor for you. Verse 12 also says that they are over you. It means they lead. They don't just love you, they also lead. They don't just labor, but they love and run alongside you. When it says here that they're over you, that literally means to take care of you. You see, the church world is not let's get into power so I can lord myself over people. 
said it so I can love and lead people, that I would care for them. See, our leaders, specifically our pastors, are called to be a guidance. They're supposed to lead you to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. That's what we're called to do. So we lead over you. But look at what it says in the text in verse 12. They are over you where? In the Lord. In the Lord. See, all we are as leaders are under shepherds of the great shepherd. We're just trying to do the exact same thing that that Jesus has done for us. As he loves us and leads us, that's what he's calling us to do. To help care for you and to lead you to love him more and to fulfill the great commandment and the great commission. And what that means at times as we care for you is that we need to admonish you. That's the other word we see in verse 12. That word means to instruct. To correct when somebody's off. So what it means when it says instruct there is not just a head download of like, give me some good teaching. And when I get some good teaching, I'm good. Like, no, there's sometimes where we need to speak hard truths in love to correct you. And that's what it means to admonish in this moment. That's what God calls us to do. And what God calls in response to the church is that we would honor those who do these things. We would look for them, that we think about them, and when we see them, that we would acknowledge and respect and esteem. Now I know that what God's word is saying right here flies in the face of American culture. I know what this passage is saying rubs against the grain of our own heart, right? Like we're like, wait, 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 you want me to like listen to somebody and do what they say? Like, no, I'm not going to do it. Like I'm going to fight, I'm going to flip tables, I'm going to burn stuff down. Like, no, I'm not going to listen to leaders, I'm not going to do it. I mean, that was what America was founded on, right? This king is telling us what to do. I don't want that king telling me anything to do. So we're going to take all this and tea, and we're going to throw it into the harbor, right? We're going to rebel because don't you tell me what to do. That's American. That's America, right? That's who we are at the heart. Let me just say, that's what turns the world upside down when we live differently. That's how the church got this reputation and got the title of the people who turn the world upside down. Because they didn't look like that. When people are like, wait, you actually don't complain about leaders and your leaders actually love you and care for you? Like, wait, what? That's, that's, the, that's the world that you, you live in and to believe in? Yes. And that's drastically different than our world outside of the church. And God has called us to be different. God has called us to be different. This is what the church should look like. And if you're still struggling with this, let me say a couple things, practical ways to to try to live this out, to to honor those who serve, and to trust them. First is a biblical reason. Hebrews chapter 13 says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Same language that's being used right here in 1 Thessalonians. They are over you. They're keeping watch over your souls. Why? As those who will give an account. Church family, you have to understand, and I... I do, and I feel the weight of this. I will stand before the Lord one day and give an account for how I lived my life. Our pastors will give an account for how you lived your life. Please make it easy for us. I even believe that your small group leaders will give an account for how you lived your life. I do. We will stand before the Lord and give an account. So if you're like, I don't like my leaders, I can't stand them, well, good. God, they're going to stand before God and give an account for how they led you. They will. 
And so don't you worry if your leaders aren't doing exactly what you think they should do. Pray for them, love them, respect them, and know that God will hold them accountable for how they have led. And I love how Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 ends it. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. There are many, many pastors who work and labor diligently to the point of exhaustion, and they do it with groaning instead of with joy. It's a hard place to be. And let me just encourage you, church, that is not the culture that we have, and I'm thankful for that. I just pray and ask, just like Paul did numerous times in 1 Thessalonians, to continue to do even more and more what you've already been doing. But the reality is there's a lot of leaders across the board, small group leaders, deacons, pastors who, who struggle to lead. And specifically with the pastors as one, these stats, they're heavy stats, but I just want you to hear them because this is a practical reason why we should strive to honor those who serve. Listen to this. 90% of pastors report that they work somewhere between 55 and 75 hours. And I know some of you fall into that same category and you might work 55 to 70 hours a week, but this says 90%. Maybe 90% of the people in, in your area that you serve, your workplace, they put in 55 to 75 hours a week. 50% of pastors will not last in ministry five hours. The gift that God has given us of people to lead and to serve and to shepherd, don't make it five years. Because we're not honoring them. We're not encouraging them. We're not building them up. This month, the month of November, statistics say that 1,500 pastors will leave ministry in a month. 90% of pastors will not stay in ministry long enough to reach retirement. Because as they labor and they toil, they reach exhaustion. Now let us not a church forget that this was not too long ago that you were struggling with these same things. It's hard. It's hard. So church family, may we have a culture that honors those who serve. And let me just say this. I know as I talk about leaders and pastors and things like that, this is hard for me to talk about. I even talked to our staff this week as we, we talked about what we are going to talk about as we went through this passage this week. Like, Please do not hear me. This is not a back entrance way for, for you to pat me on the back and encourage me. Actually, if that's what you're thinking this is, then don't do it. Don't do it. But let me invite you to think about others who serve and lead you, and please honor them. Please honor them. Would you take a step of faith this week to write a thank you card for your small group leader? Say thank you for opening up your house. Thank you for hosting. Thank you for taking time to prepare and to prep. Would you just honor them? Maybe... Even after service, you come and thank this worship team who practices throughout the week and gets here super early on Sunday mornings to prepare to lead us in musical worship. Even if they didn't play your favorite song today, would you just say thank you? Like, thank you for how you have served and led us. We're grateful. Would you think about the people in kids' ministry who serve week in and week out, and you drop your kids off there and your grandkids off there, you might not even know their names. Would you look at them and just say thank you? Thank you for loving our kids and working to make more and better disciples for Jesus. That's what their goal is. That's what they're striving after. Would you look at them and just say thank you? Would you look at our kids ministry director and our preschool ministry director, Angela and Cody, and say thank you? Would you look at our student director, Brendan, and say thank you? Would you look at these people and just say, we want to honor you. We see how you labor and how you serve. 
We love you and we're grateful for you. Would you do that? Then church family, hear, hear my heart behind this. I pray, or I try to pray every week, if this passage doesn't change anybody else, would it change me? Lord Jesus, please let this passage change my life. And so this week, I reached out to a, a good friend of mine who has served and labored for years. And I just sent him a text and I said, hey, you might not realize this, but you have impacted my life and my family and the ministry of this church. And I don't know if I've ever told you that, but I'm just thankful for how you have loved and served me. And I want, to know that that, I want you to know that that's pouring out into my church. And he texted me back, and this, this guy's done it for years. And he said, no one has ever spoke words of kindness over my life, ever. And so church family, be intentional. Like I said, it's, it's everywhere. There are people that are serving across the board. When we look at them and we honor them and appreciate them, respect them and esteem them. And what I love and what I find fascinating about this passage is Paul doesn't just look at the forerunners and say, hey, look at them and honor them. In the last couple of verses in this passage, Paul stops and he looks back and he's like, hey, not just the forerunners, but those who are struggling. Think about that. And Paul says, we as a church, yes, let's have a culture to honor those who serve, but at the same time, let's have a culture that help those who struggle. So though he looks forward at the leaders, he also looks back and he's like, we need to as a church care about all these people. So in verse 14, he says, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle and encourage the faint-hearted and help the weak. Look at those who struggle. You see, so many people in America think that the church is like a Ferrari, right? It's sleek. It moves quick from destination to destination. Like, let's get, get there quick and let's accomplish the task and look sleek and beautiful while we do it. That is not the biblical picture of the church, right? The biblical picture of the church, as you read it, is more like a minivan, Okay, on, on its vacation, right, family vacation going to a destination. Where you're driving and you want to get to that destination, but there are other people in the car to consider, right. So when somebody needs to stop and use the restroom, you got to stop, right. When somebody's hungry, you look at those that are struggling in that moment, you're like, okay, we'll stop and get you something to eat. We don't just look at it and be like, we're going to get to the end. We're just going to get that destination, you better deal with it, right. The church doesn't do the same thing. I mean, the, the church doesn't look at people that are struggling, those who are hurting, and say, just deal with it. Suck it up. we got to get to the destination. No, there's times that we slow down and we stop. And we are always moving to the destination that is before us. The one that Jesus Christ has called us to. To fulfill the great commandment. Fulfill the great commission. To take the gospel from neighborhoods to nations. This is what God has called us to do. And at times, what that means is we... Stop to help those who struggle. And before you think, well, this is great for pastors to do. And this is great for leaders to do because they need to do those things. Look at verse 14. It says, we urge you, brothers. That's, that's the community. That's the church. That's all of us. Leaders have a job? Absolutely. But it also speaks of us as a, a whole body that we work together to do these things. That we admonish the idol. That word for, for idol right there, this is the slacker. This is the one who either financially or spiritually does nothing for our service. These are people who are not contributing. It's the type of person who's lazy, 
in following through and does not own responsibility, the person that's literally being judged. They're causing harm is what they're doing. And you might think, I'm not causing any harm. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm doing nothing. Exactly. That's the problem. You're doing nothing. And when you do nothing, it harms the whole. It does. In one of two ways, it's going to harm you. One, you're a drain on our resources. You're here and you give nothing back. All you do is mooch and take and take and take. And so you're draining from the leaders who are giving and serving you. And you're just taking. Although you have the ability and the gifting to, to serve and to do these things, and yet you're choosing not to. You're being idle. You're being idle. You're focusing on yourself instead of the, the things of Christ. And this passage says you look at those people and you admonish them. That means you correct them, right? You warn them of what they're doing is wrong and you correct them. And the reason why is because if they continue in this, what you're doing is you're not reflecting Christ and you're hurting our witness. So not only could you be a drain on resources, you're hurting our witness. You see, Christ said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. For you to sit back and say, I'm not going to serve. I'm not going to give. I don't care. What you're saying is, I don't want to look anything like Jesus. I don't want to serve like him. I don't want to live like him. I don't want to love like him. I don't want any of that. I, I have the ability I have the time, and I'm not doing that. So you look at them, and he says to warn them. Warn them that they would change. This is not what God has called us to do. This is not how God called us to live as a church. And if we have this culture as a church, we will wither and die. Because it's not a Christian culture. It's not reflecting Christ. It's not. And so there's a group of people that we as a community look at, and we just need to, to spur on. You've got to serve. You've got to give. You've got to be a part. God has equipped you, and you are, you are able to do it. Would you do it? Would you serve? Then there's another group of people. It says in verse 14, encourage the faint-hearted. This is vastly different than the idle. The idle have the ability financially or physically or spiritually to serve, and they choose not to. The faint-hearted, that word literally means small-souled. And these are people who are struggling. And we encourage you. And you do not look at the faint-hearted and admonish them. You don't look at them and be like, well, man, I know your mom died, but that's okay. Get back in there. Serve. Do something. Why are you not doing something? You don't look at those people and admonish them. No, you come alongside them and you encourage them to grieve as ones who have hope. We just talked about it a couple weeks ago. That's how we serve the faint-hearted. We encourage them and we build them up. And then it also says to help the weak. Help the weak. That word for help there means to literally to help them up, to hold on to them. Our church culture is not like, oh, you're weak. We don't have time for you. Let's keep going. Let's move on. No, we hold them. We help them up. We lift them up. And here's the reality that you, you need to see, you need to know. That we will all fall into this last category at some point. We will all fall into this category of being weak and needing help. Whether it's now or 20 years from now, we will all fall into that category. And that's why we is greater than we. Because we as a church look around and we're like, if you're weak and you're hurting, we want to help financially. If you're weak and you're hurting, we want to pray for you. If you're weak and you're struggling with sin, we want to help you. 
This is what God has called us to have a culture as is a church. This is what God has called us to do. And I love how he finishes it in verse 14. And be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Let me tell you why patience is so important. Because if you don't know the difference between somebody who is idle and somebody who is weak, you'll hurt people. We need to be patient with people. That we would know where they are. To know whether we need to spur them, them on. Whether to come along and encourage them or literally to help them up. You see, if we get it wrong, we can come to the weak and we can try to encourage them or admonish them. And they still won't be able to do it. We can spur them on, they still can't do it. We can speak encouragement to them, they still can't do it. Why? Because they're weak. It'd be like taking me to the gym and putting me under 300 pounds to bench press. You can spur me on, you can do this, you can encourage me. I still am not getting 300 pounds back up. It doesn't matter how often you say it. All the words of encouragement you give me. We'll hurt people if we do it wrong. Or if we admonish the weak, or we admonish the faint-hearted. We need to be patient. We need to know where people are that we can help them with these things. And here's the reality. Many of us, the deepest wounds we have in our hearts come from the church and other believers. Because they weren't patient. They came in and admonished the weak. People came in and encouraged the weak. Or they came in and tried to help the idle. And it didn't work. And Paul in this passage knows that church hurt is a real thing. And that's why he says in verse 15, that as you live life together, as you look to honor those who, who serve and help those who struggle, I want you to understand no one should repay anyone evil for evil. Hold on, wait a second. This isn't in the church. Like why would anybody repay evil for evil? That shouldn't be going on in the church. You're right, it shouldn't be. But it happens, right? There's a statement that hurting people hurt people. God's word is like, no, no, no. Hurting people should help others, should pray for others. And it even takes it to the next level. It's not just that you don't do evil in response, but that you do good. Second half of verse 16 or verse 15 says that. Seek to do good to everyone. So it's not just like somebody hurts you or harms you. Then don't do anything back. Just be passive and let them keep going. No, it says do good in response to their evil. Do good in response to their evil. What in the world? This is what God's word is calling us to do. And what I love about this is this starts within the church. If you can't love somebody who believes the same thing you believe, then there's no way you're going to love somebody who doesn't. But part, Paul starts and he's like, let's love those within the community. Don't repay evil for evil and do good. But then at the end of verse 15, it says, do good to one another and to everyone. And this principle of not repaying evil for evil and instead doing good is meant to be lived out in a lost and broken world. It's what God is calling us to do. Now, walking through this today, you got to be honest in this moment. Like, this is hard stuff to do. And it's really hard stuff to do. Like, how in the world are we supposed to do this? How in the world are we supposed to honor those who serve when our hearts want to run the other way? How are we supposed to help those who struggle when we're worried about, man, are they going to drag me down? Am I going to look just like them? How in the world are we supposed to do good to those who have done evil to us? How do we do that? We look to Jesus. 
you're the genius. There's no way that we can do this in our own class. Here in Kingdom Church. If you come in here today and you read this and you think, okay, I feel the weight of all this. I've got to honor those who serve and I've got to help those who struggle. And you feel weighty. You need to look to the Lord. These commands are not meant to be weighty on our shoulders, but to give us joy that we can serve and love others and do good in this world. And you see, we have to look to Christ because Christ is the one that perfectly lived all this out. Think about this, church. Christ is calling us to do the same thing that he did. You see, Christ came, and though he was worthy of all honor and all respect and all esteem, Jesus laid it down and took up humility. Why? To serve you and me. To live a life that, that was perfect and go to a cross that he shouldn't have borne for us. And then raised from the dead. Jesus did all these things. Though he was worthy of respect and esteem, though he was worthy of a crown of gold, he took on a crown of thorns for you and for me. So how do we go forward? We look to Christ and we say, he endured, so can I. He served, so can I. Look, Jesus helped those who were struggling. You don't see Jesus looking at his disciples and being like, Thomas, you doubted, you're out. Done with you. Peter, you denied me, done, move on. No, Jesus stooped down to help those who struggled in their faith. And at the same time, Jesus spurred people on who were idle. That's what Jesus did. And to the faint-hearted and to, to the weak, Jesus knelt down and he helped them up. He healed the paralytic man. He provided food for those who were hungry. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is. He did all of that. Look at this. In this last, verse, verse 15, this describes Christ who did not repay evil for evil. We did evil against him. We sinned against him. But instead, he responded with good to us. This is what Christ does. So church family, if you struggle with the weight of this, then look to Christ, the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who didn't give us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and of self-control. That we could live these things out. And church family, that's what we're remembering as we take the Lord's Supper today. That's what we're remembering. We're remembering how Christ, though he was worthy of honor, came down to serve us. We're remembering that. How he gave for us. He gave his body and he shed his blood. He gave his life, everything he had. Though he was rich, he became poor that we might be saved. This is what Christ does for us. And so there's a reason why Jesus commanded and calls us to take this. It's to remember what he did. It's to remember this truth. Apart from him, I can do nothing. But with him, nothing is impossible. So the Bible is very clear for, for those who take this. One, you first need to be a believer. And as you take this, what you're doing is you're professing and you're claiming that Jesus has died for me. That I have confessed my sins and he has forgiven me. And so I take this to remember his body that was given for me. And his blood that was shed for me. The Bible is clear. This is only for Christians. And so if you're not a believer, maybe use this time to think about the truths that we spoke on today. Maybe use this moment of silence that we're going to have to pray, God, would you use this thing in my life? Would you save me?
and know that he wins. But it's also extremely clear in God's word that for those who take this, we should come with a pure heart and a pure mind. That we should confess our sins before the Lord, the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins before we take this. And see what this is? When we take this, is the assurance of pardon. Knowing that as we confess our sins, no matter how deep we think they are or how long they are, God's love is wider and deeper. And so as we confess our sins, we remember your body was given for us. Your blood was shed for us. And so I know I'm forgiven because of your love. So church family, let's take a moment now to pray and confess our sins before we celebrate the love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. that changes us. And we thank you that as we take the Lord's Supper now, we do it proclaiming you have saved us. You have done the work. It is finished. And so we trust in you. And we have faith today knowing that you have forgiven us of our sins because your word says, your truth says that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of those sins. And so Lord, we cling to that promise this morning. We thank you for that truth. We thank you for your love to seek and to save out us who are lost. And Lord, we confess our sins before you. When we're not patient with others, when we return evil with evil instead of returning it with good. God, we, we confess there's times we do evil towards others. Forgive us of that. And Lord, change us. May you love us enough not to leave us the way we are. Forgive us and change us, Father, in your name. Take this supper and we remind you that we are forgiven in Christ. Amen. Let's family take this bread and remember that your body was given for us. Take this cup and remember his blood that was shed. family, this Thanksgiving week, you'll have a better meal than what we had right here with the Lord's Supper, but not a more important meal. And this is the most important meal that you will take this week as a reminder of the life that was given for you. And so church, let's sing with a heart of gratitude and joy to the one who saved us. Let's stand up.